Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 38 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. On this episode, we will be discussing the very interesting question of whether we should always listen to our body. And this is a common recommendation in many contexts, not the least of which being yoga, where we are told to always listen to our body. But Jenny and I will be discussing, questioning, whether this is actually always good advice or whether it turns out that sometimes maybe we shouldn't listen to our body. Or at the very least, maybe this is a more complicated topic than we sometimes make it out to be. And no discussion of listening to one's body or not would be complete without a review of the phenomenon of interoception, which we will define early on in the episode. So our plan for this episode is to talk about this topic in a few different contexts. So first, or maybe one of which will be yoga and mindfulness practices. Then we'll also talk about it in painful conditions or rehabilitation, as well as athletic performance and recovery. So just a disclaimer here that we are not experts or authorities in when you should listen to your body or not, uh, because everyone is their own expert in their own body and their own experience. Um, But this is just a general questioning of the topic. Uh, Also, this is not medical advice, as always, um, but we are going to review some interesting research on this topic of whether to listen to your body and when to listen to your body and what it's telling you, what our feelings of what we're feeling in our body means, and just generally questioning some of those conventional beliefs. Before we dive in, just a reminder about some ways that you can support us and our work with this podcast. You can become a supporter of the podcast for just $3 a month, and the link for that will be in the show notes. You can also subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating or a review. You can sign up for Jenny's newsletter to stay in the loop on everything we have going on. And the link for that is jennyrawlings.com slash newsletter. Again, that'll be in the show notes. And last but certainly not least, you can join us for our flagship Strength for Yoga remote group training program, which is our monthly strength training program for yogis. You can use the discount code podcast30 for 30% off your first month. And again, all of those links are in the show notes. So Jenny... Thank you so much for joining me for this discussion. You're so welcome. I'm super happy to be here. Happy to be here with you as well. Um, Thank you for such a fantastic intro. And I think that you outlined what we're going to be addressing or what we're hoping to address today really well. I mean, I, I feel like 
the advice to always listen to your body, you know, like just listen to your body. It'll tell you what you need to do. Just listen to your mm-hmm. body. It will keep you on the optimal path or what, whatever, like your perceived outcome is. But I feel like it's, um, it's just kind of take it for granted and very widely out there that that's what we should always be doing. And it does seem like good advice, right? Like if you had two diametrically opposed things where one person was saying, listen to your body. And then the other person was saying, never listen to your body. It's always wrong. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, maybe you would err on the side, but of course it's not that black and white. Like you should always listen to your body. You should never listen to your body. And I think that's what we're going to get into. Yeah. It's not, um, should we always listen to our body or should we never listen to our body? But you know, right. it's probably the case that if we're, if we're um, hearing one of those refrains, it's probably not a complete picture, especially when it comes to like science, right? Right. Yeah. Which, very few absolutes. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's why it's like exciting to kind of tune into uh, the actual scientific research on something like listening to your body, because we do get to dive in and see that it's, there's just a lot more there, there. Uh, mm-hmm. And we can't, we can't really talk about listening to your body in much, much depth without understanding the topic of interoception. Yes. Which we've talked about before, right? On exactly. do you know the number of the episode? I don't episode know, 24. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Episode 24. You're amazing. You're, you're <laughs> to I've got it all logged. Recount. No, not yeah. really all of them, but that, that one stands out in my mind. Cause that taught that, that the good... whole episode. Yeah. So we can refer people to to that for a more in-depth discussion, 100%. but we'll, we'll review now what you need to know for then the rest of this talk. Exactly. Talk. Exactly. And also because even if you have listened to that episode, it's still, uh, it's just such a, a meaty and fascinating topic that I think no matter what, like even just reviewing some of this content just helps it like solidify a little more. It helps us digest it more. I know that, that always is the case for me. For sure. Yeah, it never hurts to hear something twice. Yeah, exactly. So basically, when we're talking about listening to our body, like the like uh, you had said earlier, the scientific term for that really is introception. And I'm sure many of our listeners are are familiar with or have heard that term introception before. But just to give us like a just a kind of summary definition, it's uh, your awareness of the internal state of your body. Basically, mm-hmm. it's like what it's like your ability to like sense inside yourself. You know, we've got the outer world, like the external world, and we have our inner worlds. And um, in some sources, you'll see like our sense of the outer world called extraception. And then our sense of inside interoception, although we also are kind of learning from research that the lines between those are a little more blurred than we may Mm. always realize. But you can kind of loosely think about that as like two sides of like how we perceive our our world, basically our body in the world. What about uh, just as as we're defining these terms, proprioception? Because I when I when I learned interoception, I think I. Maybe I'd seen it before, but I really learned it more from you. And I, like prior to that, I was just like, "Well, that sounds kind of like proprioception." So what's the what's the <laughs> what's the difference there? Because yes. they sometimes are lumped together. 
Yeah. So proprioception is like um, your sense of your body position in space, basically. And it's um, proprioception is informed by like sensory receptors, mostly in your joints and your muscles. It's kind of informing your nervous system, how your body is positioned and arranged in space. And traditionally dating, dating back to something like 1904, in a really early work by Sherrington, he originally proposed like these three facets of the way that we sense our body, interoception, extraoception, which we've already gone over, and proprioception as a third. So a lot of people have kind of learned about those three. But mm -hmm. these days, with our understanding of interoception, like the research on interoception too, we should also point out, is totally evolving. And there's a ton that's not known. So that's also mm -hmm. why it's like extra exciting. But these days, the definition of interoception is much expanded, and it actually includes proprioception these days. Mm. So it's just kind so of like it's a subset. More of like the umbrella, yeah. Yeah, interoception is like the umbrella, yeah. Yeah, so interoception includes proprioception. It's like your sense of how your body is positioned in space. Um, it also includes like your, your sense of your viscera. So your internal organs. It's mm -hmm. also um, like tactile, like touch. And from what I understand, it's more like kind of light touch to the skin when talking about touch. That's technically interoception. So like kind of lighter tactile touch. Also um, thermal. So like temperature, like when you feel warm, when you feel cold, that's interoception. And then pain is interoception and emotions are interoception. So it's really just a lot about the way that we experience our body um, in the world. Isn't that super cool? It's like a broad yeah, category. It's like, like what isn't interoception? But I remember yeah. my, like my take home from the, the interoception episode was kind of like, if you can understand interoception, it really covers a lot of bases. Like you can, like you just said, you can understand pain and you yes. can understand emotion because... It, this is like like this is the overarching overarching phenomenon. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or go search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Exactly. And really, um, I remember like when I first started learning about pain science, that was kind of my first clue into the fact that listening to your body may not always be as straightforward as we think it is. And pain mm -hmm. science, I think, is a really good example to show us that. Right. And that's kind of why later when I started learning more about interoception science and um, I realized what a big overarching broad category that was. And pain science fits in so perfectly because it's just you know, interoception is like the umbrella above it. That's partly mm -hmm. why a lot of the interoception science made as made sense to me because I already had like learned about pain science. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Like sometimes you, you study something and then you study something after and it's like, oh, I already know this because, mm -hmm. but I didn't know, I didn't know that I knew this because it just wasn't introduced as, oh, pain science fits yeah. nicely into this larger umbrella. 
Right. But like what, um, like what is pain ultimately? I mean, I think, I know it has many definitions. People, yeah. People argue about that. That's like a big, yeah, I know that's a huge, like what is pain? But, um, like we could, one way we could think about pain is that it's, uh, it's some sort of perception or feeling in your body that you feel that you then label as pain, Mm -hmm. you know? It's a feeling in your body that we probably have learned through like our culture and our society. We've learned yeah. like when you feel something that kind of, you know, qualifies like like that or has qualities like that, then that's pain. And you kind of learn like what that is. And then we put that label on it. Yeah. And that's also um, the same with emotions. Like emotions are also literal feeling. Like we talk about them as feelings, you know, but I think I, until I learned about interoception, I used to just think of feelings being more in my head, you know, like more that's mental feelings, but Mm. they're really, truly like anchored. They're literally feelings that you feel in your body. They're like perceptions. And we learn through culture and society, like which different feelings, um, you know, might be correlated with different uh, states. And we learn to label them with different, different names, like happiness, sadness, very simplified terms, but so emotions Mm -hmm. and pain, like in their, in their nature, they're feelings that we feel in our body that we label as something like we have given this category that has meaning for us. And mm-hmm. um, that's how they're similar, like emotions and pain. And also stress is another example. That's a literal feeling that, you know, we all know the feeling of feeling stressed, mm-hmm. but it's also a feeling in the body that we label as stress because we learned like um, this name for it. Mm. I think that's like super cool. Yeah. And if you think about interoception as as being made up of kind of all that stuff that I mentioned, like your sense of your uh, your viscera, just so much going on inside of you. Um, mm-hmm. The truth is we're really not wired and it wouldn't make sense to be wired to really feel all of that stuff happening. And we're talking, you know, like um, your cardio, like the blood running through your blood vessels, your yeah. um, hormones being secreted into your bloodstream. Um, food being digested, like just everything happening all at once. That would be a lot. If we actually sensed and felt all of that, like all of it, it would be, yeah, it would be overwhelming and we probably couldn't function. So what happens instead is that interoception just kind of gets lumped together into this like aggregate feeling that we, um, that's presented for us to feel in our body. And that, that uh, interoception science calls that feeling affect, affect. And I think you're, you, I remember we talked about this in the other episode, but you're familiar with that term, right? Travis, like affect. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just like your low, low level feelings of mood. You know, it's just kind of just, mm-hmm. for, this just a, this rough base level feelings that are kind of at the base of everything else you're doing. Like what's your mood today? That's, that's kind of a some representation of, of, um, yeah, of interoception. It's that base level. And then sometimes things kind of and will rise above that to more of your conscious level. Um, so whereas almost everything going on in the body is below your conscious awareness, certain mm-hmm. things will kind of rise above. And um, when it comes to interoception, maybe that's something like you start to feel cold. So then you put on a, that like motivates you to put on a sweater. Um, you feel hungry. So then you're going to eat. You feel like you have to go to the bathroom, like just these signals that kind of rise up from just being like um, part of that aggregate affect. They're a little something else. And you know the feeling and you learn to label it like that means I have to go to the bathroom. That mm-hmm. means I'm hungry. So these are the way, ways we experience interoception in more kind of pointed ways, but they're just temporary. And it's these ways that like the brain directs your interoception to um, like uh, motivate you to take behavior 
mm-hmm. all in the service of maintaining homeostasis. Right. Everything just like in balance inside, basically. That's so, so that's, interesting because as right? like a child, you might not know like something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Like maybe mm-hmm. you're hungry, but you don't know like, well, what do I, when I feel this, what do I have to do? <laughs> and right. so you learn, I'm, I guess, with in conjunction with your parents trying mm-hmm. to f- puzzle that out, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> a baby cries and it's like, well, what's wrong? Do you need to sleep, eat? be changed whatever Um, but then right right. yeah like you through process of i guess trial and error you and Mm -hmm. your parents figure out and then you learn to be self-sufficient at a certain point like oh when i feel that hunger food yeah cold yeah jacket (laughs) exactly but you like you wouldn't necessarily know until you've like tried a few things like oh that helps Right. You learn like through experience and through what your parents and your family, your culture all kind of tells you. Mm-hmm. You learn to label these feelings in your body as, as being about certain things, these um, labels that have meaning. And I, mm-hmm. I think when we think of like our body signals as far as like, I'm hungry, I'm cold, it makes sense to us that those are like feelings we feel in the body. But mm-hmm. we maybe just want to broaden our our sense of all of that and realize that it's actually no different with something like pain or emotions or stress. They're also all feelings in the body that we then like label with mm-hmm. these categories that we learned, like what they are, that gives them meaning for us. And then that meaning informs us and kind of maybe informs our behavior or things like that. Gives it all context. It's really interesting that culturally it could be different, right? Yes. And it actually can be. You're totally right. Yes. It is. Yes. The way we interpret like what goes on in our body can certainly be um, different between cultures. And it is. And I like from my research with athletic injuries and swimming, the culture of sport, when you experience pain, you're indoctrinated maybe to respond one way like in swimming you're indoctrinated to ignore it yes uh, because it's a normal phenomenon That's whereas right. outside of a athletic context or maybe in other sports it's that's not what you're supposed to do and i think a lot that's of sports right like a different culture outside of athletic yeah like the cultural context of sports says that you should respond to it this way and a different context you would be trained to actually maybe acknowledge it more like really and tell attend somebody to that. or do something about it <laughs> yeah 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 that makes so much sense so like even within the different subcultures within something like sport um there are different different approaches to like how you experience the feelings that you have in your body mm-hmm. yeah it's yes yeah, so it is so much so much is like in how we interpret you know um in our brain and that's actually lead, leads us to just another important point that I wanted to make sure to point out about interoception and remembering that inter, this includes what, I'll, what I'm about to say includes everything about how what we experience in our body. So this includes pain and emotions and stress and all of that, including our own body signals. But everything that we perceive in our body is um, the result of kind of influences coming in in two directions. And these are called like bottom up and top down. And I'm sure you've heard, I think we talked about this in the other podcast episode too, but everything that you feel in your body is, is like put there for you to feel by your brain. 
And it's a combination of what your brain is sensing. So incoming sensory info, whether that's mm -hmm. from the outside world, whether that's from your inner world and like what's going on physiologically, that's all sensory info coming in. Um, so that's that would be called bottom up. That's what they refer to it as. And then that's combined with top down, like cognitive processing, which consists of things like um, your past experiences, your beliefs, your brain's expectations about what should be happening right now. All of that gets lumped together and that's top down. And mm -hmm. it's this aggregate of all of that that your brain then presents for you as far as your experience goes, which yeah. is, and that yeah happens instantaneously Inst right so it's like yeah. not easy to puzzle out well what's yes. what am i what's happening internally and then what am i layering on from my previous experience like that's all automatic you're so right it's automatic it's what our brains evolved to do um we were like yeah it's not and so we don't have like a conscious that's not a conscious process um yeah you know, like, maybe was, in like bigger what was my past experience? What am I feeling? What I, what am I expecting? Yes. You know, that we don't no, go through that. Don't like consciously do through, that. Like what's coming in, what is, <laughs> you know, what's in the background and then what's coming out. It just happens. It's outputted for you all automatically by your brain. But it's interesting to think that maybe, you know, in a bigger picture context, maybe we could have some conscious influence on that. In the sense of like, um, you know, learning more about something like pain and how pain actually works, that may change our beliefs about, say, yeah. the connection between pain and tissue damage. And or maybe we learn how strong and capable our bodies actually are through something like a strength training practice. And then that just builds more trust in our body. And then that's this reassuring belief that then feeds in. So those types of things, if they change how we see our body, the brain will also you know, take yeah. that in. And then, then that might change the output of how we experience right. our body in a bigger picture. So you sense. can, you can be, you can deliberately shift, create new experiences that then become old experiences yes. that then informed this process as well as probably, you know, you have a, a, an initial response to something and then you can more deliberately question, well, why am I feeling that way? what am I thinking? What is my past experience? Like, what is my past experience? And can I, I don't know if override would be the right word, but can I, can I more deliberately think through this before responding just somewhat automatically? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that kind of brings in kind of the top, something that we definitely want to talk about in this episode, which is just um, the topic of something like yoga and mindfulness practices and what they can be really good at, which is that, um, as we all know, as all of our listeners know, I mean, we're familiar with like yoga and mindfulness practices. They really involve like um, paying attention in the moment without judgment, whether you're just in a seated meditation or like moving through a yoga practice. But all of it, one of the biggest goals and outcomes that can happen from a yoga and mindfulness practice is you start to build a bit of space or you can start to build a bit of space between like what you experience and then your reaction, you know, your like potential automatic reaction. And if you can start to um, just take a little bit of space and uh, to, to just not respond in such a knee jerk way that gives mm -hmm. you space to kind of reassess uh, maybe what's really going on. And that can maybe info like help regulate your emotions and your responses so that we're, I don't know, um, more, maybe more mature or, 
just taking in the bigger picture instead of just being so like led around by our reactions all the time. Yeah, that's profound. And I think people know that. Mm -hmm, <laughs> I mm -hmm. think people go into a yoga and or mindfulness practice with that. I don't know if goal is the right word, but that's that's a desirable outcome, one desirable outcome of that, right? But yeah. when you talk about it in the lens of interoception and the mm -hmm. like the processes that the the inputs and the outputs and trying to manage that process through a yoga and or mindfulness practice, it's a really interesting way to layer on that scientific understanding of yes. what's happening. Absolutely. And this we talked about in our other episode, but um, I think kind of along with the what we've already said, which is like the common refrain that you should always listen to your body and that's best. We always kind of hear that, but then we can maybe take a step back and maybe question that. I think we also, another thing we also tend to hear about yoga and mindfulness practices specifically is that they improve interoception. Like that's a very, very common, um, you know, stated benefit of yoga and mindfulness practices. And I think when you actually start to look into the science of interoception, you start to realize that that's also not necessarily as simple as the statement may make it seem. <laughs> Do right. you remember well, how we talked about yeah, this before? Yeah, because interoception is not, well, one, measuring it is tricky and two, or maybe... Maybe that's two. And one is just that there are different <laughs> kinds of interoception. Exactly. And so I wanted to make sure we outline these because these will be very uh, informative for everything else we talk about today. But I think it's important that we realize that, yeah, interoception, you know, it's what we've been talking about. But when you're really talking about like someone's interoception, it's, um, it's more complex. And traditionally in the research, research looking into interoception had kind of been um, not super clear in its definitions for what it was really talking about when it was like maybe measuring interoceptive abilities, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Got kind of confusing. And so in 2015, there was this paper by Garfinkel put out where those researchers really just kind of wanted to establish a common terminology for interoception that the field could then kind of use um, as shared you know, language moving forward so that things like make more sense when we're operating with common definitions. Good, good practice. Exactly. But it's funny that it took until eight, eight years ago, right? Right, right. Um, and, and also in a lot of interoception science is um, relatively recent. Like, a, like a, this field has like really mm -hmm. been growing and kind of blowing up, but especially recently. So it's really good that these researchers kind of set this down. And my impression is that what they've set down is like these terms tends to pretty much be the working terms that, that subsequent research has used. Some research I see maybe doesn't, but most of it seems to. So I think this will be really helpful for informing us um, in how we think about interoception and, and in just listening to the body, because here's the deal. Uh, interoception has three main components. So we can break it down into three things. And the first component is called interoceptive accuracy. And what that is, is that's just your ability to accurately perceive your actual body sensations. So like, say heartbeat, say the heartbeat, mm -hmm. you know, you can hear your, I mean, if you can hear your heartbeat, or maybe you can feel your heartbeat, like you're clearly perceiving something, but if you were to like count your heartbeat out, that 
that may not necessarily be your actual heartbeat as measured by like a machine, something like actually objective. Like you may think that you're counting out your heartbeat, you get a certain number, but actually it's different. And that's mm -hmm. because the way, what we feel in our body is an output by the brain. That's that combination of bottom up and top down. It's not a, we never a hundred percent sense pure raw sensory info. We never do in anything like how we experience our body and the world. It's always this filtered representation the brain presents. And therefore it's not a hundred percent like pure objective reality. So the way that we feel our body is not necessarily exactly what's going on in our body. And interoception science like really tells us that. So one component of interoception is just um, how accurate you are, interoceptive accuracy. Do you, did I define that clearly? Does that make sense? Yeah. So in a research study, one way of measuring interoception, and it's really just an act, interoceptive accuracy, they would have people, they would have a heart rate monitor on people and they would count the beats per minute for 60 seconds. And then they would ask the people, what do you think your heart rate is? You know, without actually measuring it on themselves, just mm -hmm. sit there quietly for a minute. What did it feel like your heart rate was? And they would report out, I fit, I, it felt like 60 beats a minute. And then they would compare that to the actual reading. And if exactly. you're closer to the actual reading, then your interoceptive accuracy is higher. Exactly. And farther off, then you're farther off. Yeah. That, I think you're well nah, that that sounds clear cut right and that <laughs> it is it is somewhat clear cut but then the question is well what does it mean to be have greater interoceptive accuracy or less interoceptive accuracy is that important and relevant right in, uh, exactly and yeah other, to anything <laughs> it's, well, that, it's and that's certainly the... one way of measuring what's going on but then what are the ramifications of that exactly what, what does being it really good mean? or being bad so that's interoceptive accuracy is just one of the three components. The other, uh, the second component is interoceptive sensibility. And that is something that's measured via questionnaires. And that is just, uh, that's just how good you think you are at, at your interoception, basically. It's your subjective sense of how well you sense your body. That's interoceptive sensibility. So and that's ask, different. You would ask somebody, how good do you think you're going to do at this task of we're going to measure mm -hmm. your heart rate. You're going to tell me your heart rate. And they'll say, well, I think I'm really, I think I'm going to be really good at it. And maybe they are, or maybe they're not. That's right. And my, or I um, think I'm going to be really bad at it. And maybe they are, maybe they're not. Exactly. And in the research I see, they usually ask the people after they reported, they're like, how good do you feel? How confident are you? That okay. You're that makes sense. And they ask them after. Yeah. Like there's like, it. well, I expect to be this good, but until you've actually done it yeah. and tried it, because you might, that, you might do it and you're like, well, I'm actually not that sure. We're like, yeah, I'm super sure that uh, exactly. I was 60 beats per minute and the true number was 60 beats per minute. Right, right. So that's like a um, that's like assessing your your confidence. And then there are these questionnaires that also just in general assess like how how well you think you you pay attention to your body, how good you think your interoception is. And then finally, the third component of interoception is kind of this more umbrella term, which is interoceptive awareness. And that's the correspondence between the other two. So that's basically um, how well. Uh, it is a little complicated, but how well, um, how good you think your interoception is corresponds to how good your interoception actually is as far as right. accuracy goes. So, so it's, it's a two by two table where you yeah. could, you could agree, but you could agree in 
two ways. You could be, you could have high awareness that you are good at that your that your interoceptive accuracy is good, or you could have high awareness that your interoceptive accuracy is bad, or you could exactly. have low awareness in with either disagreeing combination. Exactly. So if you, if, if I was like, Hey, Travis, how good is your interoception? You were like, it's bad. And then if we actually measured you accuracy wise, and it was bad, you would actually mm -hmm. have good interceptive awareness because you knew that you weren't good. Yeah. It's really crazy. Um, right, right. So, or, or if you know you're good and you are good, but if you think you're good and then you're not good on an accuracy, you know, a test, then you actually, yeah. you know, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be a good correspondence. Or if so you think good. that you're bad, but you're good. Yes. That would still exactly. not be good correspondence. Exactly. So I think this is just to show that it's complicated, right? It's complicated. And when we're talking about something like, does a yoga and mindfulness, or yoga or a mindfulness practice, does that improve interoception? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, what do we mean? Like, do we mean accuracy? Do we mean confidence? Um, yeah. And so we actually, we actually know this. And I want to say, we don't really know it. Like the research so far suggests, but I don't mm -hmm. think we can say that this is con totally conclusive, yeah. but research so far suggests that yoga and mindfulness practices do not improve interoceptive accuracy, mm -hmm. but they do improve interoceptive sensibility, which is like our confidence in, in how good we are with our interest. Which makes sense, right? Well, yes. it, you would it hope, does. I suppose that it would, imp if, if interoceptive accuracy turns out to be important, you would hope that it, that yoga and mindfulness practices has improved it, but it's not surprising that they improve our sensibility. Like, mm -hmm. oh, we're doing this thing that we think improves our accuracy. So therefore we think our accuracy is better as a result of it, which is really just our, the sensibility. Exactly. And if, um, if what a yoga practice and a meditation practice and, you know, anything that falls under the umbrella of mindfulness, if one of the main things you're doing is you're paying attention to your body as you're moving, then, you know, by definition, you are paying attention to your body and maybe the signals that are coming from your body or your breath or, you know, these things the teacher may direct your attention toward. So that definitely may help enhance your your confidence in the fact that you like listen to you. I mean, you do listen to your body. You do it like on the yoga mat. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you necessarily accurately hear your body. You know, it's not those two things are not the same thing. And so, yeah, what research really suggests is that yoga and mindfulness practices make us feel like we like know our body better, but they don't mm -hmm. actually make us know our body better on an accuracy level. I, I found that like mind blowing when I first learned that. Yeah. Cause then it's like, well, what does improve your interoceptive accuracy? Well, I think a good question is what you already posed, which is just, um, does, is it really it important? Matter. Yeah. Like, right. does it really matter? Or, and actually, or, I think we're going to talk about that today or in mm -hmm. some of our other content. Um, yeah. But I think one important point about interoceptive accuracy and is that, uh, and I don't think this is widely known, but heightened levels of interoceptive accuracy, so like accurately perceiving your body signals, is actually correlated with anxiety. And I wonder if that sort of resonates for you, Travis, or if you could kind of like see, I feel like intuitively I could see that. Sure. Maybe corresponds with, you know, maybe being a little more hypervigilant, a little more um, like I'm really listening and it's kind of, you know, making me anxious. 
-hmm. But um, the two are correlated that people who um, who have anxiety tend to also have higher accuracy as far like actual accuracy. Right. So like, do we really want? Well, and maybe maybe we maybe we can't actually maybe it's just something that we're born with. And we yeah, can't that I don't necessarily know. affect it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that yoga and mindfulness practices don't improve it, but maybe some other type of practice could if you want right. to, but I don't know how important it really is. So you might remember, Travis, uh, that when we talked about this in the last episode, what we talked, there was this great study from 2019 by Forenzi et al. that uh, that looked at subjective well-being and people who um, had higher levels of well-being. And what it basically found was that people who had higher well-being levels, that was associated with interoceptive sensibility, with the subjective aspect of interoception, and it was Mm -hmm. not associated with um, the accuracy. And so basically, that's just kind of pointing to what I think you and I are already maybe suggesting, which is that which is that what really matters is um, just that you feel like you listen to your body. You know, like you, you feel like you pay attention. You feel like you know your body. That's what seems to be correlated with well-being, not so much whether you accurately sense your body. So, yeah, a bit counterintuitive, but not, uh, not a bad thing. Not like a, a nail in the coffin for, oh, we, we shouldn't be doing mindfulness and yoga practices because it doesn't help. Oh, no, not at all. Like 100% opposite of that, I would say. <laughs> just doesn't yeah. help the way we thought it would, but maybe that is not so important. I Yeah, if you think accurately sensing your body is important, and that's what we tend, that's what the assumption tends to be, then yeah, maybe mm-hmm. you'd be a little disappointed. But I think the point is, it turns out that's probably not what's really important. That's like not what our bodies evolved to do. We're not really, like our brain didn't evolve to reflect reality accurately. It just evolved to maintain homeostasis. That's like what it's all about. And mm-hmm. so mindfulness and yoga practices are great because they help us feel like we sense our body better. They just don't actually help us actually sense our body accurately better. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So with kind of this as like an established base of what listening to your body like really is and how we do do that in like a yoga and mindfulness practice, maybe we can talk a bit about um, pain and like painful conditions and rehab and um you know, because there's so, this is completely relevant for all of that. Like, isn't one of the first things we learn when we learn about pain science that like pain can happen without tissue damage and people can have tissue damage and have no pain? Right. Which is mind blowing and not something that everybody necessarily knows. So that's let, right. Let that sink in for a second. And we've probably <laughs> talked about it before, but. Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. As you can probably tell from this conversation, Travis and I value taking an evidence-based approach to the body and movement. We channel our understanding of movement science into our one-of-a-kind Strength for Yoga remote group training offering which is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program or your first month in any other membership on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. 
Also remember that other ways you can support us are by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter and by subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. And now back to our episode. Pain can happen without tissue damage and people can have tissue damage and have no pain. Right. Which is mind blowing and not something that everybody necessarily knows. So that's let, right. Let that sink in for a second. And we've probably <laughs> talked about it before, but. Right. But, but uh, wouldn't you agree that like, that's just like very established mm-hmm. in the research now? Yeah. It like throughout the body, lots of studies, all mm-hmm. different parts of the body. And what does that look like, Travis? Like um, just like people will get scans, like MRI right. scans. So you'll that... do imaging MRIs. They'll find structural abnormalities and in in perhaps most people uh mm-hmm. and the people who have the structural abnormalities are not the same people that are complaining about pain and then the people who are complaining about pain may have no structural abnormalities at all that's right and that could that's be right. the spine that could be the shoulder the um, knee yeah the all hip, over. like all of it <laughs> right so it's, I guess, not to say that structure has like no role in pain, not to say right, that. Right, right. But just to just to suggest that um, we know from research, there's not a one-to-one correlation. Yeah, it's not everything. So it's not that it doesn't matter and that it never matters. It's just that it's not the full picture because it's not this perfect one-to-one of the more damage you have, the more pain you have, or or vice versa. Right, right. So like pain and tissue damage are not... Um, necessarily correlated. And, you know, mm-hmm. as we talked about just in our last podcast episode, remember that a lot of diagnoses in the rehab world are really trending toward just being non-specific. Like someone mm-hmm. has non-specific low back pain or um, rotator cuff related shoulder pain rather than calling it impingement. Like that's like not yeah. really the favorite term. So it's just like, we don't really know, you know, what tissue, if any tissue, like it could just be, yeah, pain is biopsychosocial. Right. Which, and it goes right back to what we said with about interoception, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, we experience it. We're experiencing this one thing, but it's colored by our past experiences and our expectations. Exactly. So we have those past experiences, expectations that are lending us to think that we should have pain when we feel something, then we produce that feeling of pain. Precisely. So once again, um, you know, just casual things we might hear, like black or white statements, like if you're moving in a certain way and you feel pain when you do it, that means you're hurting yourself. You mm-hmm. know, that means you're causing, like, these are the types of things that I, I think like 99% of you know, society thinks, because of course, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, but when you actually learn more about the science of pain and now interoception, you start to realize like, that's actually, you know, that's not a hundred percent true and can be misleading. (laughs) Yeah. And so there's this cool study, Travis, that I wanted to tell you about in case you haven't read this one before. I'm not sure if you have, Um, but it's called Feeling Stiffness in the Back, a Protective Perceptual Inference in Chronic Back Pain. And Laura Laura Mosley is one of the authors on it. And I'm sure you know who he, like huge pain science researcher. And Mm -hmm. um, have you heard of this study before? I don't think so. So, it's such a cool one that's new just to me. super, yeah, it's super in line with like what we've been talking about and just the whole concept of listening to your body and like, should we always listen and what is it, what do your signals mean? 
And so basically, um, this study looked at people who had chronic low back pain and, and feelings of back stiffness. And then they like, um, so they measured their feelings of stiffness in the back, but then they actually like biomechanic them yeah, how stiff yeah. they felt their back was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then they actually biomechanically measured the stiffness in their back by having them mm -hmm. like lay on a table and they had this like instrument that protruded into their back uh, at a certain force. And mm -hmm. um, they tested biomechanically like how stiff the back actually was, you know, mm -hmm. and then they compared actual objective biomechanical stiffness to just feelings of feeling stiff and there was no correlation so people could feel stiff but not actually biomechanically be stiff yeah. um yeah and i mean that's just in line with everything we would say like we just what we feel in our body is not necessarily accurately reflective of what's actually going on in the body yeah and it that kind of makes it's not surprising necessarily because the way of measuring stiffness that you just described it's like that that's true engineering definition mechanical stiffness and then there's like oh my back feels stiff which yeah. is just like uh something that we've layered on to that feeling and we call exactly it exactly and what um what this study also found was that people who had low back pain um, they experienced the probe that went into their back. They estimated the amount of force as being higher than people who didn't have back pain. Okay. So the people who didn't have back pain, you know, they estimated the amount of the force because they were asked to estimate. They estimated at a lower amount than the people who had pain, even though it was the same amount of force for everybody. Yeah, right. So like the implication that the researchers suggested was that just this idea that the stiffness, the sense, uh, the perception of stiffness is more about your brain just kind of trying to create protection around a region, right. but it's not necessarily like an accurate reflection of, of what's actually going on. And then the other cool thing, just to point out how complex all of this is and how multimodal and multisensory something like interoception is, it's like a combination of so much all lumped together, is that in the same study, they also... Um, did the same back probing thing, but they paired it with playing a sound in the background. And um, <laughs> it was really cool. So they had like one, uh, in one condition, there was no sound. In one condition, there was a whoosh sound. I was going to say, what's the sound? Was it like a gong? Right. It was a, a whoosh. <laughs> I don't know why that was the sound that came to my mind, but okay. Because that's like kind of peaceful or whatever. Yeah. Right. But I could see a gong, but they just did a whoosh. And then the third condition was a, the, playing the sound of a creaky door. Ooh, gosh. And so I think it might intuitively make sense, but this is what they objectively found, was that when the creaky door was played as the probe went into the back, people rated the force as higher. Like they <laughs> estimated that it was higher. Like it felt like more when they heard the creaky door wow. compared to the whoosh and um, no sound. So just, and then that was just the researchers then were like, just to show like your perception of pain, it's influenced by so yeah. much. Right. It's not just. Because that has nothing, like the sound. Yeah. The sound, they were not changing the force and it was changing the way people experienced it. Precisely. They didn't change the force. It was the same the whole time, but based on a sound they heard, which that's just, you know, also based on past experience, based on so much stuff mm -hmm. the brain integrates and then outputs for you. It's like how, what you actually feel may wow. not be objective reality. So we Isn't should just walk crazy? around with a, a whoosh noise. You're totally our, right. Your buds. This sounds like a nice <laughs> that'll, that'll, noise. That'll smooth everything over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just always the whoosh.
Um, but I feel like sounds that's dangerous good... while driving. Right, right, totally. But it's a good study to point out just to highlight further what we've already been saying, which is that what you feel in your body is not necessarily reflective of of what's actu actually accurately going on in your body. And we kind of already mm -hmm. know that, but actually seeing you know this type of research, I think is extra interesting and informative. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so if we know that like feeling pain or feeling stiffness doesn't necessarily mean there's tissue damage or actual stiffness, um, you know, like what does that then suggest about something like like physical therapy and rehab and treating people with painful conditions like there's a lot of talk Jeez. about that right <laughs> right so do you if somebody's reporting stiffness they come in they say my back's stiff and mm -hmm. then you test it and then like first of all most physical therapists don't have that gadget yes not right? like probe that gadget, so they're, yeah they're they're using their hand and they're like pressing into your l5 and they're like well this feels like uh <laughs> you know, a bit immobile compared to the other segments. It's like, well, is that actually, does that correlate with the objective measurement? So that, can you really feel that with your finger? Yeah. Yeah. But then like, so they're, they're either saying, oh yeah, you, you know, you're right. You are stiff or, oh, actually you're not stiff. Well then the person's still stiff. They want to not be, they want yeah. to not, yeah, they the person feel still stiff. feels they like feel they're stiff. stiff. Yeah. yeah. They still feel stiff. They want to not feel stiff. What does that mean from an intervention standpoint? Mm -hmm. Do you stretch them because then, or do you prescribe stretches because that their expectation is that I'm stiff, mm. I need stretches, and then they do the thing and it helps because it matches their expectation. Do you strengthen because uh, you have, you as the therapist believe that, well, whenever somebody's tight, I've found that when, when we strengthen that tight, that, that stiffness resolves so that you, then you tell them that, and then they believe that, mm -hmm. that because you've they told believe them that, that in their brain, you're the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> or do you say, we're just going to walk, uh, and that'll help. And they're like, well, that's not what I was expecting. Or do you say, I'm just going to explain to you that mm -hmm. this perception of stiffness that you're having is not reflective of reality because of this cool study from 2019 that Laura Mosley was a part of. And so you just educate them or like, w there are so many options, right? Mm -hmm. So how does one know what to do? Coupling that with the patient's expectations walking in of you asking them, well, what do you, you know, what do you expect will help? What do you think will help you? What have you done before? What have you tried so far? Do you think that kind of putting it in such a presenting it as there are so many options like that maybe suggests that like what a what someone like a physical therapist or a clinician might want to do is just really try to get to know the patient and get some communication from the patient about like what their mentality is, what their preferences are, and kind of use that to shape what they decide to do since there are potentially so many ways they could go. Yeah, I think so. The pro the challenge lies, and we've probably maybe talked about this before. If a patient comes in and they're like, well. I want um, ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Ultrasound has helped my back stiffness before. I don't. I don't know if that's actually used, but some sort of passive modality. And really, you, as the clinician, you're like, I think that's a waste of time. I don't think that's going to do anything. Then, do you still give it to him, or do you say, Well, I'm. You know, my understanding of the research is that that doesn't really help. Uh, I, I suggest we try strengthening or stretching mm -hmm. or walking. Or let me just explain to you 
just listen to this podcast on interoception. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So I, th I mean, I think that's the, the correct approach would be to hear them out, ask them what they are expecting. And then you can, you can match that expectation if you think that that what they're expecting is in line with what you think works for right, your understanding right, right. of, like maybe of the like research coupled with your street. experience. Yeah. You try not to give them something that does, isn't going to do anything and is going to be a waste of time unless it's like, well, we could do that for five minutes because they think it's going to help and feel good. And mm -hmm. then we can go and do something else maybe. That's more evidence-based. Yeah. yeah. But I, th I think ultimately there's probably a lot of options. Like, right. Which is really... A combination of maybe it's all those things or maybe it, you try the things one, one by one uh, and you find the one that works for them. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think like what you're describing here, as far as just how maybe complex and kind of confusing all of this could be na navigating this is partly because um, I don't know, like a lot, it's, I feel like it's more, although pain science itself has been around for decades, it's actually not new, but it's new that it's becoming more widely understood. And the field of physical therapy was also established decades ago. So I think physical therapy has a long history of being rooted in a a paradigm which didn't really embrace like the biopsychosocial um you know phenomenon of pain and so a lot of physical therapists do maybe treat, still doesn't right a lot of pt in, does not well, in we, some circles yeah. yeah and so a lot of pt is outdated in the way that it understands how pain works and it thinks it's more it doesn't maybe understand the top down and bottom up and the whole you know what you feel isn't necessarily what's actually going like just this whole thing and if instead you're in this other model that's just like pain and tissue damage one to one. So if you hurt, you know, we need to protect, I don't know, it's just like there's, there are, there's a lot of outdated mentality and a lot of it's in that more oversimplified model. So maybe that's mm -hmm. why it just seems like it's a lot of the dialogue in the PT world these days is like, we need to update and be this way. But this new way is it's just a lot more complex because the body and pain are complex. Right. It's a lot easier to just be like, ultrasound, I'm just going to give you this passive treatment and I'll fix or I'll correct your misalignment, you know, or I'll break up your fascial adhesions or just yeah. all, this, all this stuff. Yeah, right. but, Let me just crack your back and then exactly. your will be gone. <laughs> but Travis... And maybe, maybe it helps in the moment, but... Maybe temporarily, then they, yeah. Then they come back the next week with the stiffness again. Exactly. But Travis, um, when it comes to rehab... Um, a lot of physical therapy is uh, is based on exercise and prescribing exercise and movement. And mm -hmm. um, what I feel like is there's a lot of talk these days around is pain during that exercise that you prescribe or, or you know, as a clinician. And so, you know, like there's this big question that I think is really relevant for this topic of like listening to the body, right. which is, you know, if someone's doing their rehab exercises, should they not feel any pain? Is it bad if they feel pain? If they do feel pain, is it actually good? Like what, yes. should they listen to the body and not do the exercise? Is it okay? Like what's, what's going right. on with all that? So, so this was like the first thing that I learned as a personal trainer was mm -hmm. if it hurts, don't do it, which mm -hmm. is a subset of listen to your body, right? Yes, uh, it is. It, you know, listen to your body. If it hurts, don't do it. And I subscribed to that notion for a long time and still do in some cases but mm -hmm. maybe five years ago i was turned on to i was listening to a podcast and they were talking about maybe maybe it was like achilles tendinopathy rehab or something like that 
and they were like, oh, actually it's maybe it's okay or maybe even necessary to work into poke into a little bit of pain mm-hmm. during rehab. And I was like, whoa, what? I thought that if it hurts, <laughs> don't do it. And then I was like, oh, okay. I see that that's a particular application. Right. You know, may- maybe that that's still good advice in some cases, which I think still maybe to an extent it is, but it's not as black and white as I had been told it was and thought it was when I found out that there was a, this counter example and then came to learn that there were more counter examples. So years later, I read a study on hamstring strain rehabilitation mm-hmm. and they compared. So the big picture, like everybody's trying to get, and these injuries usually happen to soccer players. Everybody's trying to get people back faster. So how can we speed right. up the recovery process so that we can get our soccer players or our football players back on the pitch faster? Back yeah, on yeah. the field faster. So let's try seeing if we have two groups. One that, if it hurts, don't do it. You know, like our our control group, and then the other, they're allowed to work into some pain. And you, in that study, I think they were, if you look at a new numerical rating scale of uh, or a visual analog scale where zero is no pain and ten is the worst pain imaginable, they're allowing people to work into a four out of ten. Uh, Mm -hmm. So anything four or less was fair game that they could continue exercising. Whereas the other group, I forget the control group. I I forget exactly what their cutoff was. Maybe it was no, no pain at all. And what I think what they were hoping to find again was that the, the group that we let poke into pain recovers faster. uh, Their, their performance measures are, are better. What they ended up finding was no difference or very few differences or very little difference between the two groups, mm-hmm. which is still a f- somewhat favorable outcome. Like best case scenario, they would have found, oh, look, like we like let people put in pain and they do better. Yeah. yeah. But at the very least, it's not worse. So we don't have to worry so much yeah. about like, oh, you can't be in any pain when you rehab. Like, no, it's okay to be in some pain. And you will wind up in the same place by the end right. of this if you are. So that's that's kind of encouraging because then you don't have to worry about it or fear it. Exactly. And so you can you can that's a very particular application again. But there are a, a few of these applications. Mm-hmm. And so so the numerical pain rating is one thing. Um, there are other sorts of considerations that you can probably make. Um, it's <laughs> It's still tricky because as a personal trainer or as I think a yoga teacher, yeah. it's really outside of our scope totally. to be, be recommended. Like if somebody has pain, then that's outside the scope, first of all. Uh, yes, and that's that, right. You know, it's a more nuanced discussion. Treating or, yeah. We can, yeah, we, can, we can't treat pain. We can work around pain. Yeah. But we can't work through pain. But I think you can let people know like, hey, I can't as a yoga teacher or fitness professional tell you to work into that pain, but I can let you know that there's research uh, that shows that it might be okay. Still think maybe you should work with an experienced, you know, under the supervision of an experienced professional, but here are some other contexts to think about. Like, have you, have you been there before? You know, have you, have you poked into pain before and it's been okay? Are you able to like, are you, do you feel in control do you are you able to maintain your breathing pattern mm-hmm. as you're doing it? So that, but again, it's like that should 
probably be under the realm of, of or under the supervision of an, of an actual medical professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's interesting and, and long story short, it's not this clear cut clear cut black and white. If it hurts, don't do it. Always listen to your That's body. Right. It's oh wow, there might be several applications or instances where it's okay and and whether that's the four out of 10 or some people go even higher than that five out of 10 on that right scale yeah i think maybe using the example of like this research is is really like the point is just to suggest that it's maybe not as simple or black and white as you know, never push into pain, um, like in a rehab context, you know, like that if you feel pain during your exercise, that means you're damaging, you know, your tissues or worsening the right. injury. Like that's what I think we used to think. Yeah. And and another example, I don't, there, I'm sure there's research on this, but just like from an understanding standpoint, sometimes you have, you might have chronic back pain and mm-hmm. as a protective mechanism, you're avoiding bending forward because that that's what hurts and maybe exactly what you need to do is bend forward because it's not that you have tissue damage or that bending forward is going to cause tissue damage it's that you've been avoiding that motion for so long that that's kind of the thing that's perpetuating the pain is the avoidance and the um the lack of variability so you like exposing yourself to that in a safe fashion maybe that's in like a, a more unloaded setting or Cat cow maybe, maybe like rounding the yeah spine. like very mm-hmm. low load and maybe that's yeah. not as threatening or in a way where you're a little distracted so you're like doing something else you don't know your physical therapist is like throwing a ball and then the ball rolls and you pick it up and you didn't even think about it because you were playing a game right. and then uh, afterwards, the PT's like, "Hey, by the way, you picked that up, and you know, it was just fine." And they're like, "Oh, what?" Because it violates their expectation, exactly. so that then they can feel more comfortable and free to move into that position, and just getting breaking that barrier, it mm-hmm. could be ultimately what contributes to helping with break out of the painful cycle. That's right. And like that great example you just gave about people who uh, maybe they've come to like, their brain is just associated that when they bend forward, they experience pain in the back, they perceive that like this become, I don't know, wired together or whatever, but yeah, it doesn't mean it did there's hurt any damage. For, but yeah. Um, but that example reminds me of uh, this distinction that we've seen like Greg Lehman uh, lay out before, which was like, endurance copers versus avoiders. Mm-hmm. And like in the PT world, it seems like you could maybe think of um, patients as kind of being on a spectrum between one of those two. These are like end extremes, but yeah. like an avoider would be the example of what you're talking about. Like someone never going into a certain movement and always avoiding it. Almost because mm-hmm. they're listening to their body. Maybe you could suggest they're listening to their body too much. You know, they're just always like, I can never feel the pain. I'm never going to do yeah. it. Yeah. Versus on the other side of the spectrum, the um, endurance coper which my understanding of that term is that's like someone who maybe, maybe could be suggested and maybe they don't listen to their body enough. And they just like always push through the, you know, like your, your stereotypical type A, they're, they're like never Mm -hmm. listening and they're always pushing. And maybe in both of those cases, these are just extremes and kind of archetypal examples, but maybe in both of those cases, there's um, an issue with listening to the body where maybe one could actually listen more and back off more. And the other could listen less and realize they could, open themselves up to more movement. Totally. 
and all of that's just navigated around just all of this. Like, what is pain and how are we perceiving it? What does it mean? Like, it's kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. So pain during exercise does not necessarily mean that you're creating damage in your body. Um, but that doesn't mean like our audience, you know, most of the people listening to our podcast are like yoga and movement teachers. And that doesn't mean that we are suggesting that yoga teachers tell students to push through pain. Like that's not right. But um, you gave some really good uh, advice for yoga teachers a few minutes ago. And I was just going to kind of add on to that, that for me as a yoga teacher, I feel like this information, it doesn't necessarily inform me as far as treating any student with pain because I don't treat pain. Like that's not within my scope of practice, but it informs me more in terms of my teaching language, how I talk about the body how I yep. might talk about pain, I'm going to go out of my way to, to try not to create like anxiety about pain. I definitely mm -hmm. might not say, everybody push into your pain. But I'm also not <laughs> going to say, if you, you know, go out of my way to make people afraid of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I also feel that just having a working understanding of all this info, even yoga teacher, yoga teachers are not treating and diagnosing pain, but our students still very frequently come up to us and want to talk to us about their painful <laughs> conditions. Yes. And often they think that we're qualified to help them with pain and um, yeah. to have a clear sense of our lane. We should know that, that we're not unless we also are PTs or something. Um, right. But I think it's still helpful to be up to date on all this so that we can talk to our students about their painful conditions. If they want to talk to us, we can do so in a way that, you know, maybe doesn't instill a nocebo and that understands these bigger picture ideas. Do you know yeah, what I mean? totally. Right. Yeah. So even though, even though the treatment and the diagnosis and treatment aren't part of the scope of a fitness professional or a yoga teacher, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that this knowledge can't be helpful in the way that we frame yes. just in leading a class or have those conversations after class, before class with students one-on-one. -on -one. Precisely, precisely. And also because pain science, you know, as we now understand, it's like rooted in interoception science. You know, that's like the broader umbrella for all of it. And we know that in a yoga and, um, and or mindfulness practice, like interoception is like a huge part of what we're doing. So I think to under, you know, do our best to just have a working understanding of how all those processes are working then understanding pain is a big part of that, just as, as much as all the other processes that are part of interoception, just kind of part of feeding into that as well. Even mm -hmm. though, like just trying to justify why all of this is important, you know, for, for yoga teachers specifically, even though we don't treat or diagnose pain. Right. Um, another point that I thought was interesting as far as this, like um, listening to your body convo, and this is just kind of a quickie that I wanted us to touch on, but this just has to do with stretching. Um, mm, and I right. don't think this is going to inform us as far as, you know, whether we should listen to the body or not, but it's yeah. yet another example of the fact that like what we feel in our body is not necessarily an accurate representation of what's going on in the body. And that has to do with stretching. Mm -hmm. And that's because like what happened, like when, when you go into a stretch, like a hamstring stretch, like what happens as far as like what you feel like, like, why do you stop stretching? Like what, what creates the end of your stretch? You usually stop because it feels uncomfortable and right. you feel, you feel like, okay, that's it. That's all yeah. I've got. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You feel like but that's that... um, like your end range or what we might call like biomechanically, that's your mechanical end range. We mm -hmm. might feel like that. 
But as you said, you feel uncomfortable. And now as, as we've kind of established in this whole episode, what's a feeling? It's just like a, a perception your brain has put there for you to feel. Right. Ideally with the protection. Yes. In that case. In that case, yeah. Because ideally all of our feelings in our body are about maintaining homeostasis, keeping everything in balance. So your brain is probably just trying to motivate you to not go further. Mm-hmm. But what we actually know from stretching research, and again, we won't go too deep into this right now, but just that um, there's this phenomenon called stretch tolerance. And that large, that is largely what actually determines your stopping point in a stretch. It's not act like you actually, like when people go under anesthesia and they're not conscious anymore, they can actually stretch further than they could when they were conscious. They have more mechanical range, but when they're awake, their brain just kind of holds them back. So anyway, um, does that kind of make sense that that's what stretch tolerance is? And it's like this output by your brain for you to feel in your body. Yeah. And different people have different stretch tolerances, right? So some people can get closer to their true mechanical end range and other people less. And you can maybe, well, and when you increase your range of motion over time with the stretching intervention, it might have more to do with increasing your stretch tolerance than actually Mm -hmm. anything else physiological. I believe that, not that research that's not suggests physiological, but it's yeah, right. But it's not like tissues and biomechanics. Yeah, I believe that's what research suggests is that stretch tolerance is the primary mechanism by which we increase flexibility. But there are sometimes people take that too far and they say stretching is all about stretch tolerance. And I don't mm. believe that's what research supports. Actually, stretching does actually make some create some mechanical changes in the tissues. Again, maybe another conversation for another podcast. But- yeah. That seems that the, that particular topic seems to have gone back and forth a lot, and mm-hmm. it's like you said, it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah, maybe. I think it's majority stretch tolerance. Yeah, it's not. Which no, doesn't surprise me. It's not entirely stretch tolerance. Exactly. It, as again, right? Things are never black or white, right? It's always complex. But I think the main point speaks to just the power of um, our perceptions and what the brain creates for us, and all of that you know, is like really huge. And I think often underappreciated, mm-hmm. but speaking of all of that, um, let's turn our attention to this final topic we wanted to talk about today, which is like performance and maybe a little bit of recovery. And mm-hmm. this is more kind of in the realm of like athletes and athletic performance. And you, Travis Pollen, you happen to be an athlete. Back in my a day. medal winning record holding <laughs> swimmer. Paralympics. Former, former record holding Paralympic swimmer, but yeah, I'll take it. So you know what it is? I actually just found my medals in my parents' basement. <gasps> oh, um, awesome. And, and I was like, oh, wait, why are those? these in the where why are these in my parents' basement? I should be showing these off. So I took them to work and hung them oh, up in my office. That's so appropriate to put in your office at work. <laughs> good, good conversation starter. Yeah, that's excellent. I want to send me a picture. I want to see those. That's very cool. Deal. But um, so you know a lot from personal experience about like being an athlete and, um, you know, there are different types of athletes, but I think, I think some of what we want to talk about today has to do with endurance athletes, mm-hmm. because that's kind of where, uh, where actually we might want to talk about more than just that, but we definitely want to talk about that and the role of like listening to your body, especially with regard to endurance athletes. Like, do you have any, ex- what's your personal experience around when you were swimming and, um, you know, like, did what sort of signals did you take from your body when you should stop or did you not or? I mean, you're like the whole 
the whole premise with endurance sport is like trying to push through your body telling you to stop, right? That's uh, right, Travis. Especially in, in longer distance races, you know, marathons right, right. Uh, in particular with running, but mm -hmm. long distance events and swimming too. Like everything's telling you this hurts. Yeah. I need to stop. And then you're like, no, I need to push past this. Totally. Like, um, I, so I'm not like an endurance athlete at all. Uh, but I wanted to learn a little bit about this. So I did a little research, like what do people say? And I read mostly about runners. Um, mm -hmm. but I just read a lot of, you know, just really reputable sources that were ways to give advice and tips to endurance athletes and, um, and runners on like how to literally the quote is like push through the pain. Yeah. Like literally that's what you're supposed to do is push yeah. through the pain. Um, yeah, yeah like try like, to train yourself not to, not not to feel it, but to ignore it. Get yeah, get used to the discomfort. Like don't right, stop right. on the first signal or the second, or like when you're running a marathon. Oh, you're gonna hit a wall at 20 mm -hmm. miles. You have to break that wall down, That's and if you right. can get past that, then then you're you can finish the marathon <laughs> because ultimately, um, and we know of course there are extremes, but ultimately it's the case that our bodies are capable of more than it all often, right. they often signal to us. Right. Right. That's like so kind of the you main can, point. yeah, you can break through that 20 mile barrier and finish the marathon and recover from that. Uh, a marathon might actually be extreme and, ex and, mm -hmm. and another extreme example because running a marathon actually is not, that's not like a good. Right. 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 It's true thing to do. Um, but just from the standpoint of like, yeah, if you go out and run three, four miles, it's going to hurt. Yeah. And if you push through it, you can act, that can actually produce a favorable adaptation. That's you know, right. you have more that you can give than you think you can give if you listen to that first signal to stop. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it, generally it, it is okay to push and not listen in that at context. First, but yeah. Yeah. You can't take it so far to such an extreme that you could cause damage to yourself or you, right. you want to avoid that. And, um, but that's like, I think what makes this that relevant to this conversation. It's just like, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes the signals that your body is sending you just may not really be accurate as far as what your actual physiological limits are. And with mm -hmm. something like running or say like strength training, which is like a different form of exercise, things are uncomfortable. And even like with strength training, we technically do do like micro damage, you know, at the cellular level through like lifting weights or something. But that's what then signals our muscles to then adapt and grow stronger, or that could be part of the process. Um, right. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. And with running, you're like pushing your edge and maybe, you know, maybe you're, you're weaker and you're tired after, but that's actually just like part of the, the whole bigger picture to come back stronger right. and yeah, yeah, like in strength training, you don't stop once it hurts. You stop once you can't do it anymore. Yeah, you're right, Travis. With, within reason within of, reason. well, if I'm going to such an extreme that my I'm lifting something heavy and my form is deteriorating so much that it mm -hmm. becomes dangerous. You totally. Wanna, you want to not do that. Totally. Uh, but you don't want to. You don't want to stop. Like, oh, that that hurts a little. Like, yeah, it's supposed to hurt. It's, it's supposed to be uncomfortable. Like that's yeah. part of the Yeah, it's supposed to be experience. uncomfortable. Yeah. Hurt, Both with like, right. I know. And some of these words, these words are also kind of open to interpretation and like a little, a little yeah. vague. And but it's, yeah. It's 
that's tricky when when someone is new to any physical practice but because the one that i coach people through is strength training like differentiating between oh it, that's the way it's supposed to hurt mm -hmm. oh i'm supposed to be sore versus oh that it's not supposed to hurt like that that's unproductive soreness or joint soreness mm -hmm. like people people tend newer people tend to be a little bit more fearful or more apprehensive and you know you have to help right them understand like hoax that that's them okay. like it's okay it's supposed to feel that way that's normal that's good um and then there are other people who are just like oh, i'm gonna gonna uh, you know old old school no pain no gain i'm that's just gonna right. push through it and then those are like the like people we talked about earlier where they're maybe, the endurance copers versus yeah. the avoiders it's kind of like that a similar <laughs> spectrum yeah I but in say. a training context versus a rehab context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Travis, I think there's a really cool study that we wanted to touch on about um, elite endurance athletes. It's actually about long distance and long distance runners and sprinters. And it's really cool and super pertinent for this conversation because it specifically took these athletes and it looked at their interoception, which is kind of what this whole conversation has been about. And it was super interesting because it it basically compared these like elite athletes, uh, and then it also had people who are not athletes. And it uh, tested this goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, the different components of interoception and how you've got your interoceptive sensibility, which is your subjective sense of like how good your interoception is, and then your accuracy, like how accurate you actually are. And just in a, I'll just like in a very simplified summarization. What and this study is from earlier this year. It's from 2023, so it's Hot really off recent. The press. Exactly, uh, but it, and it's um, uh, the title is. I'll just read that: interoceptive differences in elite sprint and long distance runners: a multidimensional investigation. Seabury at all 2023, and what it found was that elite athletes they um, thought they had higher confidence in their interoception. So they had higher interoceptive sensibility. They thought that they were better at interoception, but they were mm -hmm. actually worse than non-athletes on an accuracy level. They were worse. Yeah. They sensed their body less well, like on an accuracy level than non-athletes. That's the basic mm. gist. It's a little more complicated than that. And anyone can look sure. up the study to read it, but um, we'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll link it in the show notes. Um, it's a super similar observation to um, the research that's been done on like meditation practices and mm -hmm. mindfulness practices, um, which is that like the meditation and mindfulness practices increase people's um, ability to feel like they know their body, but they don't mm -hmm. actually increase or are not you know correlated with the ability to feel it better accurately. And it's kind of the same with the elite athletes. Yeah. And it it's particularly interesting because, well, they're runners. Some of them are sprinters and some of them are distance. And you're saying that it was sort of the same. Mm -hmm. Like you could you could imagine that for the distance runners, their training is teaching them to ignore yes, their, their body. Yes, that's right. And I, I, don't, I wonder if that's kind of true for sprinters too. It's a little different because it's it a little different. Doesn't hurt the same way when you're sprinting versus when you're right. It's a it's like a different experience, yeah. right? So it's like this, we you don't want to necessarily extrapolate this to all athletes, but we do have runners at two ends of mm -hmm. the uh, specialization spectrum with sprinters and, and distance. That's so, right. 
we can say this for runners. I don't know if there's other research on athletes. Right, right. And I don't know about, uh, yeah, I think there has been some, and actually this study, like in the introduction, talks about some previous research. And it basically was suggesting that the previous research indicated and suggested what this study also suggested, which is that um, like okay. elite athletes are maybe kind of um, characterized by a reduced ability to to sense their body. Wow. So it's here's just a here's just an interesting quote. Um, it is plausible that athletes who are particularly sensitive to internal sensation may struggle to push beyond their physiological boundaries as required in elite athletes. Meaning, yeah. um, if they can sense their body better, maybe that makes it harder for them to push back, push beyond yeah, the limits. Yeah, self selects out that they're not going to be in that study because they're not elite. They yeah. can't get to that status because they can't push because they're more aware. Because they're more aware, which could hold them back in that type of setting. Fascinating. I think so too. So anyone who's interested should definitely look look that study up. Because um, yeah, but I like I I just think it's interesting because it kind of parallel. It's very different. I know, like elite athletes, very different setting than like a mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. But in both cases, they do seem to suggest that you know, these um, mindfulness practitioners and elite athletes do have heightened confidence in their ability to feel their body. They think they feel their body better, but they actually don't. Mm -hmm. And with elite athletes, they actually felt their body less accurately than non. But from my memory with the mindfulness practitioners, they were just no different from non. Okay. It wasn't that they were worse. It was just gotcha. no different. That's my best memory of it. But anyway, <laughs> um, I think that just kind of helps contribute to just this whole picture of Maybe it's a complex question of whether we should always listen to our bodies, right? I, th I think we've demonstrated <laughs> that. Yeah, I do. And it's just kind of fascinating. Like, just I think the whole topic of interoception and also just taking a look at, at research. Like, I think sometimes there's a perception that I understand that research can be dry or boring. But I think actually it can, to the extent that it can help inform us about all these processes within the body, it can be fascinating, right? Look how fun it is. And important and just help inform yeah. us. And, um, but you yeah, know, totally fun. I wasn't trying to say that it wasn't fun. It's super fun. Yeah. But also just, I think, helps make us just, I don't know, better, more informed, whether it's that we're yoga movement teachers or just practitioners or if we're fitness professionals, or even if we're rehab professionals listening to this, it's like, I think all of that just really helps inform how we think about our body, our students, our clients' bodies, movement, pain, just the interface between all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so Travis, do you think, do you have any last thoughts to add? Or do you think we've kind of covered this? We did it. <laughs> I think so too. I think we covered, yeah. To be continued, perhaps, in future discussions. That's a great point. I do think these themes are, like, always kind of with us, you know, always, like, underlined so much of what we do. Um, and definitely tune back into episode 24, in which it was that was all about interoception and emotions, specifically in pain. And it was a rad discussion, too. But <laughs> <laughs> I think all of this is so good for us to talk about together and also for our audience to learn about. So thank you so much, Travis, for talking with me about this. Thank you, Jenny. And that wraps up our look at whether we should always listen to our body. Remember that you can become a supporter of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast for just $3 a month via the link in our show notes. 
You can also support our work with this podcast by subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. Also, be sure to stay in the loop with all of our content and offerings by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter. And lastly, remember to use code podcast30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program, or 30% off your first month in any of the other memberships on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. Thank you.